welcome to Deaf Policy Talks, coming to you from the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. In this podcast, you will hear an interview between Professor Stephen Howes, Director of the Development Policy Centre, and two senior managers from the Aga Khan Foundation, who recently visited Canberra, Michael Coker, the Global General Manager of the Aga Khan Foundation, and Matt Reed, Chief Executive Officer of the Aga Khan Foundation in the UK. The Aga Khan Foundation is one of the largest international NGOs in the world, and it operates in some of the most difficult environments in the world, including Afghanistan and Syria. Hi, my name is Stephen Howes, and I'm the Director of the Development Policy Centre. Today I'm speaking with two senior leaders of the Aga Khan Foundation, Michael Cocker, Global General Manager of the Aga Khan Foundation based in Geneva, and Matt Reed, CEO of the Aga Khan Foundation in the UK. So if I understand it correctly, the Aga Khan Foundation is part of the Aga Khan Development Network, which is a massive conglomerate working in 30 countries around the world and employing approximately 80,000 people, the majority of whom are based in developing countries. So what I'd like to uh, first ask my two guests, and welcome to you both, uh, is to explain, or for one of you to explain, uh, what the Aga Khan Foundation is and the Aga Khan Development Network, uh, how they relate to each other, and perhaps give a bit of the history. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen, very much for having us today. I'll, I'll start. Uh, the Akhan Foundation, I'll begin with that, is about 50 years old, and we work in 20 countries uh, in the developing world with an emphasis on uh, South and Central Asia, uh, uh, East Africa, uh, the Middle East, uh, and a, a few other places uh, uh, thrown in. Uh, we work in health, education, uh, uh, economic development, civil society, uh, and increasingly, uh, we're, we're doing more and more in the economic uh, development space in the places where we work. We have the foundation have about 4,500 uh, people working for us. Uh, the overwhelming majority of, of whom 99 plus percent uh, are uh, national staff in the places where we're working. Uh, we are part of the broader Aga Khan Development Network, as you know, AKDN, and that is the 80,000 uh, staff, uh, global, uh, uh, very, very large, uh, uh, and we, we we run our own schools, uh, uh, and that goes from early childhood development centers all the way through uh, uh, graduate education in places like the Aga Khan University or University of Central Asia. Uh, we also uh, run a number of hospitals and clinics, uh, and we are a major sort of actor in the development space with a, a range of partners uh, as well. And uh, an interesting dimension of, of the network as a whole is that we also also have uh, private businesses uh, uh, in a number of uh, locations and a number of um, areas, and the profits of those then go back into the development work. Uh, so I understand the uh, development revenue uh, of the network is some $950 million US dollars a year, which is pretty significant. That would make you a sort of small-size OECD donor or a major NGO, something like the World Vision. Uh, so you mentioned uh, commercial revenue. How important is that and, and where does all the money come from? Well, so uh, actually we're, we're even larger than that. Um, so the, the, the 900 uh, plus million is the not-for-profit side. So as Michael had said, we have 10 development agencies. Nine of them are not-for-profit covering things like health, education, etc. One is uh, what we call for-profit but for development called the Aga Khan Fund for Economic Development. That entity is about 5.5, uh, 4.5 billion dollars a year in annual operations. Um, uh, 
the the nine hundred plus million um, on the not for profit side uh, then brings us to roughly five point five billion dollars. The money comes from a variety of sources. So uh, we're in incredibly fortunate to have the generosity of the of His Highness the Aga Khan and the uh, Ismaili community and a number of individual donors worldwide. For you to look across that, I mean, roughly, let's say 20 to 30 percent at any given time is coming from uh, His Highness uh, and, and those sources. And the rest comes from uh, outside investors and partners. Um, I think it's important to say when I talk about investors that on the for-profit but for-development side, all of the proceeds get reinvested in the group. Um, so they're used uniquely to, to uh, expand our activities and on the for-profit side, those are things that are uh, addressing binding constraints on development or promoting maximum employment or they're used for the social development activities which include, as I said, everything from healthcare to, 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 to rural development. Additionally, Stephen, uh, we work with uh, the traditional bilateral and multilateral partner organizations of which DFAT here in, in uh, Australia is one and, and we're a, a I think their largest partner, for example, in Australia. But we also work with Global Affairs Canada. We work with DFID in the UK, AID in the US, European Commission, of course, and, and uh, a longstanding uh, partnership with the German government, with the French government, uh, uh, with Japan, uh, and, and a range of others. And, and on the multilateral side, uh, for example, the, the World Bank, uh, the Asia Development Bank. Uh, so it, 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 it's quite a diversified uh, portfolio of uh, public and private uh, uh, partners. Yeah, I guess despite its uh, many activities and large size, probably not very well known, at least here in Australia. Uh, you mentioned the Aga Khan uh, himself and the uh, Ismaili community. Perhaps just explain that relationship a bit more and uh, give some indication uh, to what extent is the Aga Khan Development Network a Muslim organization? So His Highness the Aga Khan is the 49th hereditary imam of the uh, Nizari Ismaili Muslim uh, tradition. Um, he traces his uh, ancestry back to the to the Prophet, um, uh, and and uh, it is a is a, therefore a, a hereditary uh, title. He leads that community uh, uh, wherever they are around the world. Um, the Aga Khan Development Network is made up of organizations that were founded by his grandfather, the previous Aga Khan, or himself. Um, some of the institutions of the network have been uh, uh, active for a hundred years. The first Aga Khan school, for example, was founded a hundred years ago in Kutch in Gujarat and in Zanzibar. Um, the you know the 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 first dispensaries uh, of the Aga Khan health services uh, were formed uh, about the same time. Um, the the Aga Khan is, uh, as you said, uh, a spiritual uh, a Muslim spiritual leader, um, and so therefore the. Uh, uh, entities of the network are an expression of his um, responsibility as the imam of his community uh, and as a Muslim leader to give back to the world. 
Um, so uh, he 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 uh, uh, would ha- and has expressed it uh, in the sense that as a Muslim leader, he has an obligation to uh, improve the quality of life in the world for his community. And what this Aga Khan has done is to then extend that to anyone with whom he comes in contact. So he has interpreted that mandate, which in his uh, – I think for, for him personally, obviously, is an expression of his Muslim leadership – um, but actually what we're really talking about is also uh, a sense of uh, humanity writ large. Now for the the uh, so therefore the institutions are um, an expression of his commitment to the world, but we are uh, actually non-denominational. So the, the Aga Khan Development Network uh, across all of its institutions uh, works with and serves the communities where we are present regardless of whether they are Ismaili or Muslim or Hindu uh, or tribal or Christian, for example. I was the CEO of the foundation in India uh, and in India, for example, we work in six states. Um, 50% of our beneficiaries are in tribal communities, uh, 25% are Dalits or scheduled caste, about 20% are Muslims. It's very, very important um, to understand that the network by design works with everyone wherever we are. I think His Highness sees that not only as an expression of his uh, spiritual responsibility, but also frankly, very practically as the best way to ensure um, broad-based, not only quality of life, but security for the people in the communities uh, where we happen to be present. Uh, you mentioned that uh, a fair chunk of your revenue comes from commercial sources. And uh, if you've been in Australia for a while, if you've talked to other NGOs, you might have noticed there's a lot of pressure uh, on fundraising. It's a difficult environment at the moment. A lot of NGOs are thinking about commercial sources of revenue, social enterprises. Um, I'm sure there'd be a lot of interest in hearing what those commercial sources are. Um, yeah, and to what extent, how do you, do you find any tension between the profit motive and the philanthropic one? How do you reconcile them? Yeah, that, uh, good, good question. I, I don't th- think we, we, we find tension. I'll, I'll begin by saying that we, we, uh, screen, uh, uh all of our, our partners, uh, uh closely and, and certainly, uh, corporations. We don't have a large number of corporate partners, for example. We partner with the, the, the businesses within the Aga Khan uh, uh, network, the development network, but we also work with uh, other corporations. Uh, but we, we, do, we do have quite a vetting process uh, of who we will partner with, and the number is not large. Uh, uh, so we, we, we have that. And uh, you know we are obviously very comfortable with 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 those uh, corporate partners uh we also work with uh, you, you mentioned you know the various sources of revenue you know you know there's increasing sort of impact investment uh vehicles out there now funds and we're quite selective in those uh, uh and and work with uh, a limited number of those as well uh, afd in france has uh, capital uh, toward development uh, things, including uh, we, we have a number of energy uh, uh, projects, for example, uh, in places ranging from Uganda uh, to uh, Tajikistan. And uh, 
Uh, Matt, other other things to add on that? Well, one thing I think is important uh, to understand on the for-profit before development side is that we are always the owner-operators uh, of these things by design. His Highness the Aga Khan um, has, has uh, made a sort of internal rule, as it were, that the Aga Khan Fund for Economic Development must always have the controlling shareholding precisely so that we can maximize the development impact not profit. We're very careful about the kinds of other investors that might come in. The vast majority of them, as Michael was saying, are from development finance institutions, IFC, Proparco, FMO, KFW, DEG, those sorts of institutions who themselves have, um, at least nominally, a, a development uh, impetus and outlook. Just give um, me an idea. Are these mainly in developing countries? And uh, are we talking about like construction oh, yeah, companies, absolutely. supermarkets? Uh, what actually so, are the businesses? Uh, well, so uh, so the, the the fund for economic development, uh, as I said earlier, is focused on binding constraints on development. So financial services. So uh, we were the founder of uh, and and uh, of something called the Diamond Trust Banking Group uh, that's active in East Africa, Habib Bank uh, in South Asia, um, the Diamond Trust Bank uh, in India, etc. So financial services is a big part. Telecommunications. So something called Roshan Telecommunications in Afghanistan about uh, eight nine years ago you would you would read stories about leapfrogging development and how telecoms could do that one of the places they talked about was Afghanistan and the company they were talking about was Roshan telecommunications so telecommunications is another infrastructure clean energy as Michael said um, and then there's this other side uh, which we call maximizing uh, maximizing employment things that have very long value chains so for example if you've ever stayed or heard of the Serena hotels. Um, these are ecologically sustainable hotels promoting sustainable tourism with long value chains as well as a number of agribusinesses but that focus on smallholder farmers. Yeah. One you may not have heard of is called Frigoken, uh, which predominantly produces green beans uh, in uh, uh, Kenya and is working with the hundreds of small shareholder farmers. And on the AKF side, the foundation, we're working with those farmers uh, and others uh, on technical inputs. Uh, the, the broader question you 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 noted, uh, Stephen, is you know, it, it, do we see any tension uh, between engaging uh, for-profit uh, uh, businesses uh, in the not-for-profit space? And, and I think while you have to tread that carefully, the answer is not, and candidly. Must be no, uh, because there is simply not enough public money to address the the range of development uh, issues in, in uh, 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 across the world, uh, and we work predominantly with uh, ultra poor. Uh, and, and often, most often rural areas, uh, usually in sort of high altitude places, uh, and uh, the appetite uh, for. Now, overseas development assistance is under strain in a number of countries. I think you know uh, more about that or as much about that as we do. Uh, so, so I think a diversified portfolio and, and sort of creative solutions to very big problems uh, 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 need to be had and the combination of uh, – uh, not-for-profits, for-profits, civil society, government, governments uh, uh, optimally come together to address these issues. Now, as an economist, I'm definitely sympathetic to market-based <laughs> approaches. I, it, it's it's a pretty unique model. Maybe some of the big Bangladesh NGOs like Brack or Grameen are now straddling both those worlds, but yeah, we don't see that often. It's very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I suspect there will be more of it. 
uh, in the future, I think impact investment, which is still a relatively nascent uh, area, uh, 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 w- will grow and, and become more sophisticated. I mean, I mean, it, viewed critically, it's another sort of phrase for debt financing. Uh, but you know, we, we work with a number of, of these institutions and in blended finance, where there are grants together with. Uh, concessionary terms. The foundation itself does not take debt. Uh, in order to take debt, you have to have a business model that that you know can pay it back. But we do have assets within the network within the network as a whole that can. Uh, uh, so in that respect, I think that we are uh, fortunate and uh, innovative as we're looking for composite solutions to, to to problems that have no single answer. Often. All right. So you mentioned uh, Afghanistan and uh, you're here in Australia. And uh, I heard from DFAT actually you're Australia's biggest NGO partner in Afghanistan, which is telling. So perhaps tell us a bit about your the nature of your current cooperation with uh, with Australia and I guess why you're here and, and what you're hoping uh, in which direction you're hoping to take that? Well, so let me start by saying a little bit about the cooperation with uh, with uh, Australia, and and Michael may want to say more more generally about what we do in Afghanistan. But in Australia, or sorry, in, in Afghanistan, and actually in Pakistan, Australia has been uh, a large partner uh, with us, um, probably over the past ten years, roughly uh, twenty five million dollars of assistance has has come to to the foundation and to other entities. Um, in Pakistan, almost fifteen million. Million, uh, of, of those uh, U.S. dollars um, uh, went to education work. So really focusing on uh, early childhood development, improving uh, public education uh, at the both in the in the the public school level and at the community level. Focusing especially on girls' education. This is something that, um, as I mentioned earlier, the foundation has been. Uh, involved with for a very long time. And in fact, indeed, the network has been engaged in girls' education since the founding of that first school 100 years ago. So it gives you a sense of just how important women's empowerment girls' education is to us. The other thing that's important about Australia's assistance with us in Afghanistan is that it's really focused on a, on a, what we call a, a holistic uh, package of development interventions at the community level, um, working with local communities who themselves form community organizations. These are representative bodies where they themselves are um, uh, identifying their own development needs, prioritizing them, and then working with us drawing on Australian funds um, to uh, improve their quality of life. And I, we think that for us, that's a fundamental part of the way that we work anywhere uh, where we're present. But in Afghanistan, it's very important to demonstrate to those local communities that government can work for them. Uh, and so therefore actually suggests that there is a, a, a sort of future as it were. Um, yeah, our, our main areas in, in Afghanistan are in the north, places like Bamiyan or Badakhshan. Uh, we work along the border with Tajikistan, uh, for example, uh, other places into the Wakhan uh, uh, corridor. And Matt, Matt gave an indication of the sectors where we're working. Uh, and we have a number of partners. We partner with DFID, uh, I think their largest uh, uh, work toward girls' education. Uh, it, it, I think one of the reasons that we like to work with the DFAT and appreciate it is that they understand the importance of community-driven development. And it's a, you know, it's a fairly simple thing, but something that's not easy to do well. And that is engaging communities uh, in structured ways to, to hear from them what it is they, 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 they wish for and then how we can best support it. 
And that can be a early childhood development center. It can be a market. It it, it can be a bridge. It, it can be an irrigation canal. Uh, it, it, uh, a number of things. Uh, uh, and so, so we are fortunate to have a number of uh, technical experts on our team. Uh, uh, I mentioned uh, that we are predominantly uh, national staff driven in Afghanistan. Uh, we have been working with uh, a good and very large team uh, for a number of years. Uh, and sometimes uh, I'm asked, well, you know, how, how do you work in Afghanistan? And there's a great deal of uncertainty there now. Uh, uh, geopolitically, uh, and you know, what, what do you think will, will happen? And, and uh, I, I have no crystal ball, but I can say that no matter what happens in Afghanistan, we will remain there because our, our, our staff uh, are uh, living and working in their home villages, hometowns, and come what may, they will remain. Uh, and, and that gives one, uh, I think, a, a fair amount of optimism. I mean, how do you combine being a big international NGO with having that homegrown sort of national ownership? I think that's a good combination. Uh, how do you get we, it? Well, I, I think you, 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 you have to be purposeful about it. Uh, we're quite expat light uh, in the countries where we work. I've worked for an organization that, that, that has a heavier expat uh, footprint. Uh, you know, you, you have to invest in your staff. First of all, begin by recognizing there's a lot of talent, uh, in, in developing countries and, and we, uh, uh, look to identify it, uh, uh, hire, hire these people, invest in them and create sort of career paths. Uh, we send some of our, uh, uh, managers in Afghanistan, for example, to Bradford University in the UK for master's degrees, uh, uh, as an example, then they come back and continue to work for us. I think, I think, you know, we, we are very large, as you've noted. By definition, you must, you are decentralized when you do that. But there is, there is a role for the center, if you will, you know, the, on quality assurance in all the places we're working, financial controls, compliance, safeguarding, uh, good human rights, uh, uh sorry, good, good, uh, human resource uh, practice, uh, security. We, we spend a lot of time and effort on our security footprint in, in, in places. So we, we think we have the balance right. It's, it's not, something that's static. You're always examining that and evolving it, especially as the uh, context can change and things can change pretty quickly in, in a number of the fragile states where we're working. Can I add one one thing to that, Michael? I mean, the other thing that's important to understand about the network is that unlike a lot of other large international NGOs that sort of started from the center, as it were, and grew outward, we started outward and grew in, in a way. I mean, if you think about those first Aga Khan uh, schools that were started 100 years ago, those were started without any kind of central infrastructure in mind. And so in a way, that organic growth has then required us to create more central services. And that therefore is it's, – it's in our DNA. Uh, and I, you know, if you're in a board meeting with His Highness, His Highness will ask you, well, what's happening in that region? What do people on the ground think? Um, there's a lot of time and effort uh, in our network that is spent on understanding how people on the ground are experiencing our work and whether it is truly benefiting them. Yeah, those are really good points. That's a very interesting sort of organic history that you can uh, benefit from. Uh, you mentioned Pakistan and that DFAT's funding you there. Um, I mean, that's one of the areas that's actually been cut as a result of the overall aid cut. So you, is your funding affected by that? 
funding in Pakistan is getting tighter uh, for a range of reasons. Uh, uh, but but we, we have a number of uh, agency actors working in, in Pakistan. The Aga Khan Health Services, Aga Khan Education uh, Services, uh, our Habitat Agency, the Foundation, and we also have uh, some of the businesses uh, there as well. So we're, we're holding steady. Uh, it, 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 it is a... Uh, it's much more difficult to raise public monies in Pakistan than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, uh, but but it's not completely dried up uh, by any means. And the, the Pakistan government is also funding development efforts in its own country. And we, we partner with host governments uh, as well. Uh, and there's also corporate support for, for work in, in Pakistan. Uh, but but it is among the countries that, that are is being squeezed by, by a reduction in overseas development assistance. There's no question. So in terms of your trip here and the future engagement with Australia, are you looking uh, to deepen the engagement with the Australian government or uh, with the Australian community or, or both? Uh, uh, bo- both, I think. Uh, the starting point would, would be uh, when we, we, we come here – you know, not often. It's it's rather far away, certainly from Geneva. But but a pleasure to come here. Uh, and we do have a, a good partnership with DFAT. I mean, I, I think DFAT is, you know, a very if if you'll allow an intelligent international development uh, uh, partner, uh, and understands. Uh, what what good development means and understands the challenges attendant uh, to it. So that that's a great starting point. Uh, as Matt said, we have a good 10, 15-year history with, with DFAT. Our geographies don't always align. You know, we're not working in the Pacific. Uh, we don't work in uh, Indonesia, for example, uh, but we work quite extensively at the other side of the Indian Ocean. Uh, uh, and uh, even if we are not a partnering in a country, there, there's a good exchange of ideas, sort of best practice, uh, uh, and we, we think there is room to further develop uh, that, that partnership. I, as for the um, Australian public, uh, uh, let's see, there's an Ismaili community uh, in, in Australia uh, that's longstanding and growing. Uh, uh, and we'll see uh, what what uh, what posture we we may finally uh, adopt in this country. All right. So we've mentioned uh, Afghanistan. We've mentioned Pakistan. I understand you also work in Syria. Uh, so you work in some pretty difficult and uh, frankly violent uh, parts of the world. To what extent do you think, through your work, you're able to actually address the fundamentals of conflict and actually reduce conflict? You know, versus. Uh, the perhaps more modest but still really important task is just of helping people to endure that conflict and and survive and even flourish against the odds. It's a really good question. I mean, certainly when the conflict is live, as it were, it's very much more the latter uh, than the former. Um, but uh, as Michael was describing earlier, I mean, our approach to development is a long-term approach. So, you know, you, you may remember a few years back, there was a big debate about the localization agenda, about um, sort of moving from humanitarian assistance to resilience, et cetera, all the things which we support as a network. But whenever we're involved in some of these areas of humanitarian crisis, we we are a actually a development 
organization that gets pulled down into humanitarian work, or if you will, rather than a humanitarian organization that has to start thinking and development. So anytime that we're active uh, in humanitarian crises, we are already thinking about what happens after, how do you create some of those fundamentals for the long term, if you will. So that's why in Afghanistan, for example, from the very beginning, uh, uh, we started working on education, healthcare, some of the fundamental building blocks that you'll need uh, for that society long term. Uh, at the same time, as Michael had said earlier, for us, it's very, very important to have that deep rooted community engagement so that again, you can not only help communities cope, which is very, very important, but them help themselves organize around their own development and take charge of it in a way actually in some very, very, very um, unstable situations. Uh, just one one last thing and Michael, you may want to add in but His Highness talks a lot about the importance of civil society by which he means um, private energies um, promoting public goods. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why our network invests in long-term institutions. And his view is that uh, those sorts of institutions, whether they're hospitals or schools or businesses, that they can act as stabilizers, if you will, in times of transition when governments may be you – know, some days they're up, some days they're down uh, and there are all sorts of – a host of other challenges in these places. Um, but that's really our, our approach, which is long-term in nature. Yeah, I just – I would uh, totally endorse that. Uh, you know, it's very different to saying we're going to do a three-year project, right, versus saying we're going to build an institution that's going to be here indefinitely. Well, when, when I started with, uh, with the Aga Khan Foundation, I was having a discussion with His Highness and he was talking about something in the, the midterm and he looked at me and said, by which I mean 25 years. And, and I, I think that, uh, the, the, that vantage point, that perspective I think is uh, not common uh, sufficiently in, in the development space. Uh, on the humanitarian development work, you know, our, our, the majority of our work is in development. We, we do humanitarian work. But uh, good humanitarian work incorporates development principles from day one. And that, that is, uh, you know, engaging beneficiaries, engaging communities on what, what they need and how best uh, to, uh, help them get it and deliver it. So I, I think it, it, it is an artificial divide that, you know, for three months you have one thing or for three years you have something and then you make a right pivot on onto now, now we're in development or in the case of Syria, for example, reconstruction. I, I think there is a continuum. And if you do your work well, uh, the, the principles applied are, are, are not dissimilar. I guess another common feature of a lot of the countries where you work is uh, gender inequality, in some cases extreme gender inequality and, and challenges to gains in equality. Uh, you'd mentioned education as an area where you promote gender equality, but does it go beyond that? How do you incorporate gender into your work? In, in a range of ways. Uh, uh, we we the gen, gender lens in, in all of our, our work. Uh, uh, the majority of our beneficiaries w would be women and girls. And, and we, we've talked a bit about uh, uh, education and we do a great deal uh, in, in whether, whether it's Kenya, whether it's in uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, elsewhere on education of, of women and girls. And, and that is trying to get them into early childhood development uh, programs all the way through, frankly, you know, doctorate degrees, uh, for example, at the Aga Khan University with campuses in uh, Kenya and uh, Pakistan. But we're also, uh, and here I'll speak through foundation again, we are trying to do 
increasing uh, work in economic development. Uh, and that can range from very small village savings groups uh, in extremely remote places in eastern Tajikistan, uh, for example, to supporting uh, micro and small enterprises, women-owned in places like uh, Pakistan or elsewhere. Uh, so we, we find uh, that, that working with uh, women is not only sort of the, the just and, and moral thing to do, but frankly, it's also a very smart and strategic things to do because uh, uh, working with them in all, all studies and data show that, you know, that if you engage uh, and elevate the economic status of, of a woman, the whole family benefits from that. And we, we take that very much to heart. Uh, so as a think tank on aid and development at our center, we put a lot of emphasis on aid transparency and evaluations, and sometimes we're critical of DFAT for not doing enough in that regard. Um, how important are these principles for the work of the foundation and the, and the network? The principles of evaluation are fundamental. You know, you can't do good as, you know, Michael was talking about how you do good development. You can't do good development if you're not trying to get a sense of, of how you're doing it, whether you're having the impact that you wanted to have or not. So in uh, embedded in all of our programs, as in, uh, you know, most donor funded aid programs nowadays, you would have strong monitoring and evaluation, et cetera. I think the other interesting thing uh, about our organization, which I referred to earlier, is that His Highness uh, has created his own what he calls quality of life unit, where we've done a series of uh, longitudinal studies in places where we've been active for a very long time um, to try to come in and understand, not just in terms of the macroeconomic indicators of you doubled crop yields or incomes and that sort of thing, but genuinely in dialogue with communities to understand what is important to them for improving their quality of life and trying to get a sense of whether or not what what we are doing or what anybody frankly is doing in that space um, is, is, is making the kind of difference in their lives that they would like to see or whether or not there are things that we've forgotten about, we haven't picked up, we're not addressing enough. I mean Michael's point about jobs is, is a perfect one actually. Another dimension of that, we haven't really talked about our work in culture. The contrast for culture for a number of years has been acting in that. And, and, and that can be restoring, for example, Hamayan's tomb in, in Delhi, uh, as an example, but could also mean uh, creating a public space. Uh, uh, and now in, in Kabul, which is a, an interesting city, but not known for green spaces, uh, we now uh, have, have supported the, the public, lo lovely uh, parks, uh, Chihil Satrun, uh, Bagi Babur are a couple. I was in each of those not, not so long ago. And you go through there now and, and you see young kids running around and playing and young couples and elderly people. Uh, and it, 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 Matt's point, a lot of things go into quality of life. And, you know, here in Canberra, I, I, my sense is the quality of life is quite high. Uh, and part of the reason is not just because there are good schools, uh, good health facilities and good jobs, but there is a lot of nice public space uh, for people to enjoy and, and get out there. And that I, I think sometimes as you look at things through a development lens in, in ultra poor places, that's not always on your list of considerations. And, and I do understand in the, the hierarchy of need, uh, you're going to need a health, a hospital or, or a good school, but, but, you know, uh, we try uh, to look at the fullness of, of what it, it means to have a, a good uh, quality of life. And, you know, I, I've got two young kids and I know what, what 
uh, you know, they view as, as a high quality of life. And I think parents are pretty similar no matter where you go. And we, you know, we're, we're trying to uh, bring all of these things to the extent we can with partners, uh, bring to bear on those quality of life considerations. No, it's an interesting discussion uh, here in Australia. You know, we're focusing a lot on the Pacific and uh, we're now focusing a lot on sport. And there are two different schools of thought about this. One is, you know, quite cynical. This is Australia just trying to promote, be popular. The other school of thought, yeah, well, actually people are mad on sport, right? This is actually an important part of their life. So I guess you can see it through either lens. But I'll just finish off with, uh, we have to wrap up, but I, I, I can't resist asking one final question about this, uh, or two final questions actually, about what you said about the quality of life unit and the longitudinal surveys. Uh, first, are they public? And second, you know, do they show improvements? Um, I guess, you know, the Canberra view of that, of a lot of those countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, you know, things are getting worse, but um, maybe we're uh, being too pessimistic. So the answer is some of it is public. Absolutely. Uh, not all of it, but some of it is. Um, and you can find it on our website. Uh, if you go to AKDN and, uh, akdn.org and look under the quality of life, you can find some, some of those excerpts from some of those studies. Um, the, the other thing that we do is we also, uh, commission external evaluations. So for example, we recently did an evaluation, um, together with the German government of some of this stabilization work that we've done in Northern Afghanistan with a, an outside organization called ARC and then Chatham House. Uh, who was val you know, validated it in terms of best practices, et cetera. And the answer is that it shows it does show steady progress. Now, the progress in some of these places is not near what we'd like it to be. Um, but uh, even at the quality of life level, uh, if, you, if you look at it just in quality of life terms, let's say, you can find some very important differences uh, in, say, Afghan communities or even Tajik communities, etc., between what life was like 18 years ago and what it's like today. The, you know, the access to education, the access to finance in some instances, um, access to healthcare, those sorts of things have absolutely changed in the places that we're we, where we're present. Has it changed enough? Certainly not. Um, but it's not as dire as one might think. Even in terms of things like stabilization in a place like Afghanistan where we know that there are deep security challenges where the Taliban now has a larger amount of territory um, under – uh, let's call it contested um, than, than it has been since the beginning of the conflict. Um, a lot of that is episodic. And so when you look at it from a, a day, a, you know, the, the, what is the daily lived experience of someone living in those places? There are still moments, their, their lives are punctuated by that violence, but sometimes it's not dominated by it. So what we find is that there is some steady progress. Um, but obviously, much more needs to be done. We can't underestimate, and I don't mean to underplay uh, the, the challenges there. Yeah, Michael, final it, 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 It's a profoundly important important um, uh, question. It, 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 it is easy to to, to uh, be pessimistic or cynical in, in these places, and I know that there's sort of fatigue out there in some parts. But I, you know, one sees it I, uh, in, in northern Pakistan. You know, you know, there there has been significant improvement in uh, uh, children and uh, maternal infant and maternal mortality rates, for example. And we have done our bit to contribute to those improvements. Matt mentioned uh, that there are many more. Uh, 
girls in school in northern Afghanistan now than there were 20 years ago and they're graduating and, and they're they're you know they're they're, they're uh, some of them at least are going out of university uh, and, and in in Pakistan many many now are going on in university so so there have been significant gains more kids are in early childhood development centers and and any anyone who has studied this will tell you that one of the most important things for human development generally is getting little kids into environments that uh, stimulate their learning. Uh, but, but these gains can be fragile. Uh, and that, that's a concern as Afghanistan is going now into to peace talks. Uh, uh, will, will these gains be preserved and, and advanced? So we're, we're very mindful of those things. But uh, I, I think it, it's very easy to, and it's understandable, you know, the media tends to look at a lot of the negative things happening, but there are many, many good news stories out there in the development space in the most fragile states. Uh, and uh, uh, we thank you for drawing attention to these things. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Michael and Matt. I appreciate your time. I've certainly learned a lot from this conversation. So thank you. Thank you, Stephen, thank you. very much. It's my pleasure. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Center. If you've enjoyed this podcast, check out our blog at devpolicy.org, where you can subscribe to our daily posts and various newsletters. You can also subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review and thanks for listening.